This is New Books in Geography, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Peter Ekman, I'm your host, and today we're talking with Rob Sullivan. Um, Rob has written a very interesting new book called The Geography of the Everyday, Toward an Understanding of the Given. This book came out in 2017 with the University of Georgia Press. And um, Rob, how are you? I'm fine. I'm fine, Peter. Thank you very much. How are you? I'm doing all right. Uh, you're coming to us today from Washington State. Um, where exactly are you today? I'm in a very small town called Quilcene, Q-U-I-L-C-E-N-E, which is a town of uh, about a thousand people, about 20 miles south of Port Townsend on the Olympic Peninsula. It's a very, very beautiful place. Sounds fantastic. And you've been there for, um, you were telling me before, about, about a year or so. Yes, almost exactly a year. Yeah. As I understand it, up until about a year ago, you were in Los Angeles, California. Um, I find myself in California today, but in the uh, northern part of the state. And um, uh, on, on the back of the book, it says you're a former lecturer in geography at UCLA, um, one of the great uh, geography departments on the Pacific Coast, and you said you taught at a couple of other institutions uh, down there as well? Yes, I taught, at, uh, I taught at UCLA for about three years, and I also taught at Cal State Northridge, Cal State LA, and Santa Monica College. I mostly taught um, classes in urban geography, cultural geography, and uh, classes in, uh, on Los Angeles. And you've published um, a book on L.A., in fact, Street Level, Los Angeles in the 21st Century, and um, uh, a second volume, um, Geography Speaks, Performative Aspects of Geography, um, a, a more theoretical treatment that I think intersects with some of the concerns we will take up today uh, regarding uh, your, your newest book. Um, it's a, it's a very interesting um, book. It's, a, it's an attempt at, um, as, as I read it, um, a very ambitious uh, attempt at sort of a general theory of what you call the geography of the everyday. Um, the everyday, everyday life, everydayness. This is a sort of theoretical concern that a variety of thinkers within and without the discipline, as you show, have taken up, but not always in the, um, I suppose, comprehensive or, or, or systematic um, uh, way that you um, think the um, this is this sort of calls out for. Um, it's a profoundly geographic take on this question, and we'll we'll, we'll get into how you've uh, pieced the argument together. It's also not a purely uh, uh, theoretical uh, work. You draw on a fairly eclectic range of examples um, to shore up some of these claims, and I, I assume we'll get into a couple of those as the interview uh, goes on. Um, I'm interested uh, just in the in the first instance to, to hear about how you came to write this particular book. Uh, what is the, the backstory here, the thought process um, to the extent that you can uh, reconstruct it? Um, what led you to write this, this, uh, this exact book? I would say there's two prongs that kind of explain the writing of this book. One is um, my advisor at UCLA, Michael Curry, was very interested in the geography of the ordinary. I mean, he talked a lot about the geography of coffee shops, for instance. And I, I had always been fascinated by ordinary places such as restaurants and coffee shops and how they, how they operate, how they work. And um, so that sort of set me off looking for something like this. And then I was spending a lot of time on a bus bench off right adjacent to UCLA waiting for the bus. And I started just analyzing that intersection as an, as an everyday place and what was going on there. And it's actually a fascinating place because uh, out of the buses in the morning would pour mostly students, but also a lot of um, nannies headed towards Westwood Homes and a lot of people working in facilities on the campus. So it's quite a sociological mix of people. And um, I just started working on that corner at the beginning, and that's that's what got me started. Okay, um, and am I right in thinking that this uh, this book came out of your dissertation uh, project? 
Yes, this was my PhD dissertation at UCLA. Okay, fantastic. Um, well, you say um, at, at various points in the uh, book, you're, you're fairly explicit about this. Um, uh, its ambitions are to um, are to construct uh, a an argument that you that is you say on page 176 for those following along at home. This book is obviously a work of synthesis. Uh, you present it as um, equipping geographers and other kinds of scholars, other kinds of uh, theorists, with a set of tools uh, for the study of this thing called the everyday. You uh, say on the last page of the book that it was from its very inception intended to be comprehensive. Therefore, an almost circumpolar tossing of the net was required, a, a, a turn of phrase that sort of stuck with me. Um, Mm. This question of the everyday, though, what do we mean when we say the everyday? If you can take a, a couple minutes to sort of um, uh, define or um, or sketch out uh, what this concept means for you. You've told us about this bus, this bench, this one particular intersection in uh, Westwood section of Los Angeles. What is the everyday as you conceive it? Um, well, the everyday is what is assumed, uh, what is, what is, what is the given in the backdrop? What is, uh, what is supposed to happen? Now the everyday changes, it can change quite a bit. So if you went back 50 years ago, part of the everyday would not include two men or two women, uh, walking down a sidewalk holding hands. Now, in many cities, in most major cities, the sight of the sight of that would 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 be considered every day. It's not that shocking of a thing anymore. So the everyday does change. So it has a lot to do with customs and mores, but it also has a lot to do with the built environment. So um, there's some reason. I mean, when students enter a classroom, they don't sit where the professor is going to sit. <laughs> they sit in the rows of chairs that are lined up facing the professor. And behind the professor is a blackboard usually, or um, something along those lines. So there's a lot of stuff in the built environment that kind of reinforces the, um, the given of the given, if you will. Um, so, and this kind of guides us as we go along, I mean, if you disembark from an airplane, um, you usually know where to go. I mean, there are signs in the in the in in the airport signage, but there's also a kind of stream of people that you follow, and you know to follow these people. That you're probably gonna, if you follow these people, you're probably going towards the baggage claim area, to the passport control area, etc. So there's a lot of clues built into the built environment and into the way people move through the built environment that 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 um, gives us the kind of props of the everyday. The everyday can be violated. Uh, very easily. And it, it's not violated that often, which is the amazing thing. So if you went into a coffee shop and suddenly saw someone in the uh, a customer go behind the counter and pour themselves a cup of coffee, I mean, that would be very, it would be very shocking in a way. It would be it would, it would puncture the everyday. Or my favorite example is if you saw someone at a dance hall or a nightclub, if you saw them lying down in the middle of the dance floor studying their books, uh, I mean, that would show you what the everyday consists of. Likewise, if you saw someone in a library dancing, that would also show you what the everyday consists of. Yeah, this sort of this, so calls, that, that, this, this calls to mind some of those famous um, uh, ethno-methodology ethno uh, experiments or interventions from uh, – Harold Garfinkel and sociologists of, 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 of decades past, um, and your your focus on the, uh, the built environment, the physical movement, the uh, the physical streams of humanity through these spaces, and attempts, imperfect attempts, to choreograph human movement through those spaces, uh, give your account, I think, a profoundly geographical bent. Um, but you take a, a very, I think, profoundly interdisciplinary approach to this question, you bring in theorists from sociology, um, Irving Goffman and others, um, some from geography, certainly, um, 
the, the time geography of Torsten Hegerstrand, who I'm sure we will discuss in, uh, I believe, Chapter 2, and a variety of uh, big-ticket theorists who sort of cross-cut discipline and period, Marx, Foucault, uh, uh, Lefebvre, a variety of thinkers you um, bring into the fold. And it's one of the, um, one of the appealing features um, of this book. Um, I wonder if we could start with the uh, the first chapter. I think it makes sense. It's the type of book where it really does make sense to um, take the argument in uh, in sequence. Uh, one gets a sense that you are in each chapter adding another set of tools, another set of concepts or or uh, ingredients or qualifications such that by the end, <coughs> there are six chapters in total, by the end we have filled out what you present as sort of a complete toolkit for further investigations of these questions. Um, chapter one um, deals very closely with the thought of Michel Foucault and with Irving Goffman, who um, you seem uh, to uh, you seem to, to want to read together rather than fully opposed. You want to read them together. What kinds of insights are you um, selecting out and then synthesizing from these two thinkers. Theoretical inception of this book was um, an article by Ian Hacking about um, the possible combination of Foucault and, and Goffman. Goffman being, as Hacking puts it, from the ground up, and then um, uh, Foucault being from the top down. Um, so my first question was, well, if you have these two thinkers, one on the bottom and one on the top, there's got to be something in between. There's got to be some meat to this hamburger, in other words. So um, what I try to do through the book is start off with Goffman and Foucault and then put in the stuff that's in the middle between the bottom and the top. Now, I disagree with hacking that um, Foucault is just a top-down thinker. I think Foucault just thoroughly explored the top, the bottom, and the middle. Um, and uh, But Goffman was um, a, a bottom-up thinker. I mean, he spent a lot of time on the ground investigating uh, different situations. And those that word situation is kind of the key word for Goffman in terms of the everyday, while uh, Foucault's term milieu is the key word for him to investigate the everyday. So um, if you take these two thinkers, although it's kind of a flawed concept that hacking puts together, you can't put together an interesting composite of um, somewhat opposing viewpoints on uh, what we call could call the situation or the milieu or the setting or the or the location. I mean, all these words um, denote a sort of everyday situation. So um, I spend quite a bit of time trying to batten down or trying to pin down what the situation is to Goffman. And at the, at the same time, I try to do the same thing with the milieu. Now, there's opposite problems with doing that. And Goffman's work is very under-theorized. I mean, and he even admits this in one of his final pieces that he wrote, that it's kind of a conceptual scandal how little theory he did, whereas uh, Foucault's work is sort of over-theorized and a little bit underused, especially his work on the milieu. So you kind of have to... Um, piece this together as, as best as you can and admit that there are some flaws. But what I try to do is put these two together to operate as a whole. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm sympathetic to, to, the, to that basic impulse and, and fixating on the, this notion of milieu itself. That term has, has a long history. But, I mean, if we're just taking, taking, it at, uh, take, take, taking the word itself at face value, it it denotes a middle place. So it must be somewhere in the middle, not at either of these sort of notional uh, poles of either extremely macro or utterly micro. Um, so you, you, you bring Foucault and Goffman into an interesting conversation here. Um, they're still with you. That, that, that basic polarity is, I think, still with you as you move into the second chapter, um, which makes a, a, f a few different gestures um, theoretically in 
in sequence. Chapter 2 is called The Space-Time-Place Thing. Space-Time-Place rendered as as uh, one word, in fact. And you take up each of those concepts um, in a different section of this chapter, adding them to the vocabulary that you'd worked out uh, above. Um, let's start with time. Um, uh, geographers uh, are... Uh, sometimes comfortable taking taking up these questions, but um, it, it ends up, it's, it's harder than it seems to think about space and time together, always bundled together. But you assert that this is the case. It's something we must do. And your, your main uh, sort of witness for the prosecution, I suppose, is um, the work of Hagerstrand, um, a series of articles that he published mostly in the 1970s and 80s. Um, I wonder if you could explain uh, what kind of intervention he allows here. Well, I mean, uh, the reason I used him is he's he's a great avenue just into the question of time. And I mean, he, he his his work um, looks at time in a very uh, clear and realistic way. Uh, what's going on in time? In this certain place, what are the exits and what are the um, out, out egresses from time in that place? So I, I wanted to use him, uh, even though ultimately I think his work falls quite short because he doesn't realize or he doesn't at least manifest or, or write about the um, very obvious and clear restraints on place and time. In other words, if you look at a pool hall from, let's say, 1960 in Chicago, there are not going to be any women in that pool hall. Um, and, you know, that's kind of a universal factor that we have to take into consideration when we think about place in terms of time. So he did none of that. He kind of act, he kind of wrote as if all places were equally open to all people, which was unfortunate because uh, I think his work could have been used a lot more than it was, except it really had that, that pitfall to it. But it is a good way to begin the conversation about, about time. Yeah. Um, so, some of our listeners are, you know, card-carrying geographers. Some are not. Um, I wonder if you could sort of sketch out, um, for those who haven't encountered his work in, in, in the raw, sort of what time geography, his term, um, ultimately looks like, the, the, the concept of path, the concept of project, um, and, and all the rest. Yeah, well, if you have a path and a project, I, I mean, your path is, let's say, a certain task, that you um, need to do that day. And the project might be, um, let's say the project is depositing money in the bank. So your path takes you from home to that bank. And so it, it's really a simple way. I mean, that sounds like completely simple and obvious to the point of being um brain dead almost, but people were not looking at time in such a clear-headed way. I mean, they didn't, they hadn't conceptualized time in this is how long it takes you to get to a certain place. Once you're at that place, you need to account for the same amount of time getting back, and plus you have that certain amount of time at the place that you're talking about. So um, he did a good job of putting that into the foreground and getting people to think about um, the constraints of time, the rigors of time, and, um, you know, et cetera. And to think about bodies always in, in, in some state of movement through space. As you note, unevenly so. And we can think about inequalities in space along precisely these lines, um, whether or not uh, he uh, sort of fully satisfied uh, that that task. Um so time, space, and place. Um, place ends up becoming um, an important concept for your conception of the everyday. Um, you're pretty forthright about this. On uh, page 53 of the book, uh, you, you, you say, and I'm quoting here, what must be acknowledged by geographers is that place is a term that has been left suspended in a kind of definitional limbo. Despite yeoman work by such thinkers as Doreen Massey, Yifu Tuan, Robert Sack, 
Michael Curry, Jeff Malpas, uh, Edward Casey, and Nicholas Entrican, the conceptual framework of place is still dangling from its hinges, screwed into an apparatus too flimsy to carry its own weight. But you do seem interested in um, recovering this concept and, um, and, and folding it into this overarching theory of the everyday. Um, how do you propose to do so? Well, I mean, first of all, I would say that <laughs> the effort to define place is, uh, oh, gosh, so quixotic. I mean, I don't think – and yet we use the word, and we kind of know what it means. But, I mean, the basic problem is uh, a place can be your glove compartment in your car, but a place could also be the universe. So um, how do you define it? I mean, how do you limit it so it makes any kind of sense? I mean, what I really try to do in this section of the book is take time, space, and put place together with it so that it's one entity. Because the parsing off of those three things into three separate entities is uh, one of the great fictions of the history of human thought. I mean, there is no space without time and place. There is no space without time and place. And there is no place without space and time. So if they can't be separated from each other, they must be somehow um, definitionally, definition, definitionally um, conjoined. So I'm really pushing for that and for people to take this seriously as a, a way of thinking. Now, I, I mean, it does make sense to separate them if you're going to analyze certain things. But when you analyze them, you've got to remember in the back of your head that you have separated things which are not really separable. And that's the trick, and that's very difficult to do. So I, I'm not sure if I've answered your question, but um, I mean, I wouldn't expect a, a little bit. Of, I wouldn't expect a, a hard and fast answer to the question of, of of what is place. Geographers have been debating this for for quite some time, and with with a, a lot of a lot of energy, space and or place uh, was 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 a major um, you know sort of or, orienting framework in a lot of late 20th century debates. The the sense I get from your argument is that you feel that those those um, those debates, although robust, were somewhat somewhat vague and also um, concluded too soon before we'd sort of uh, equipped the right kind of concept needed to make sense of the everyday. So you're um, you know writing um, perhaps a, a, a generation after some of the the major works of those uh, uh, those thinkers who you you litanize in that in that in that quote, and you're 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 resuming the um, the, the 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 attempt um, to sort of work up a full fledged theory. Um, I just wanted to give you the the chance to expound, uh, which you which you did, I think, nicely. Um, okay. In the following chapter, chapter chapter three, at this point, um, you're still thinking about time. Uh, the 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 title of the chapter is "Time Goes Vertical, Space Yields In," and you you draw uh, I think a crucial distinction between. Um, uh, time as such, um, sort of as experienced in everyday life, and time as history, a much more, much more diachronic uh, sense of, 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 the, of the passage of time. I um, wonder if you could sort of um, uh, work through that distinction and explain um, why it matters for the, for the, for the project here. Uh, what, what, what getting that distinction down um, allows us to explain uh, better? Well, I mean, so we have time in the moment, which I think of as a kind of vertical entity. And then we have uh, time, a historical time, which I think of as a um, I, I'm sorry, I, I, I confused that. Time now is a, as a sort of a horizontal entity, and um, historic time is a kind of horizontal line down into the past. And um, being aware of those two aspects of time is is crucial because I I think a lot of theorizing about time. Um, 
neglects historical time. And historical time has to be factored into any consideration of time. I don't see how you can um, work your way around that. It, it, it's going to be incomplete without a sort of theory of historical time and what historical time does for us. And what I try to do in the chapter is I take um, Bertolt Brecht and his appearance before the House on American Activities Committee in the late 1940s, I believe it was, mm -hmm. and use that as a sort of historical um, ballast for the argument that I'm making. Um, because I'm also working in something from Desert 2, which is the idea of the tactic and the ruse. And I, I mean, I know of no better example than Breck before that committee of someone using the ruse. Because when he left the committee, they congratulated him and uh, sort of, um, it's, uh, we're hoping that the other witnesses would be as compliant as he was. But at the same time, he was the one truly dedicated communists that appeared before that committee in that particular sequence of, of uh, hearings. So um, you've got to have both aspects of time or else time is incomplete. Mm -hmm. And then you extend this into a fairly, um, fairly detailed uh, case study. You deal with Brecht and you deal with um, the, uh, the fiction of, of Yaroslav Hasek. And then you, you delve into a fairly detailed case study um, involving oil extraction um, in Nigeria. Um, and uh, we've been speaking at a fairly um, fairly high level of generality. I wonder if we could kind of dip into this case and explain how this um, kind of develops the, uh, the, the theoretical argumentation in this chapter. Well, what I'm talking about here is the secretion of space, which is an idea from Lefebvre and from uh, the production of space where space is secreted by society into different forms. And so, uh, I mean, a great example of this, and here I'm mostly building on the work of, of Michael uh, Watts from UC Berkeley, who's done a lot of work on Nigeria and oil, um, is that the oil complex, the Nigerian oil complex was secreted um, in that country over the last 70 years since oil was discovered there, first drilled in 1956, and it, it manifests itself in a wide variety of forms. I mean, you have – and I try to stretch this out as far as I possibly can so that you're looking at this oil uh, secretion complex not only in terms of the uh, shell oil uh, – rigs there on the ground in the Niger River Delta, but also in terms of the various guerrilla groups that have fought the government and the oil companies, especially a group called MEND, which are a somewhat legendary group, and then also including the headquarters of the various um, oil companies in London and The Hague and Houston, but then also including um, – all the tools and instruments that go into uh, the building of those rigs. So ever expanding on this idea of the, oil, of the secretion of the oil complex, but it, eventually it also includes someone, let's say, on the 395 highway in the eastern Sierras filling up their gas tank with oil so that we really um, – distend this idea of the oil assembly or the oil complex into a far-flung affair. And this is all has to do with space, the secretion of space. I mean, and that's just one example, but it's the one that I think works the best in terms of, of, the, of spatial secretion and um, the way that society changes space through uh, secreting different forms of space of the built environment. Sure, and the sort of sedimentation of these different uh, uh, yeah, alterations of, of space uh, uh, accumulating over time and thereby setting constraints on how everyday life ultimately is lived. Um, as, as I yeah, and the, and, the, and the interlocking of those elements that are also constrains everyday life. You know, I mean, especially if you look like at the fishermen of the Niger River Delta who, you know, sustained themselves and made a living fishing before uh, oil was struck in the Delta. And now all those waters are polluted. So their everyday life has 
dramatically changed because of the secretion of the oil complex into the delta there. Sure. Um, and you're, you're taking that concept of uh, spatial secretion, um, I, th I think, directly from, from Lefebvre there. Um, and yes, yes, that's it. Yeah, and in, interestingly, you, you, you bring Lefebvre into this uh, uh, equation primarily through his, his text on the production of space. Um, I, I, I think without diving too deep into his three-volume uh, critique of everyday life, um, you're sort of finding your resources for your own project on that question um, in sort of a different part of his output. I just wanted to uh, sort of note that um, uh, just sort of in interesting aspect of the of the bibliography here. Um, but Lefebvre is a sort of convenient bridge to what's going on in, in the next chapter, the fourth chapter, um, where you engage the um, the Marxist or Marxian tradition in geography. I think a, a, a bit more um, a bit more directly um, co coming into questions of uh, social reproduction, labor re reproduction, but also just sort of reproduction in a almost mundane biological sense, questions of food, sleep, shelter, again, with the built environment, um, and, and uh, uh, waste management as just uh, sort of base dimensions of everyday life, a profoundly materialist understanding of everyday life um, in lots of ways. Um, maybe you could... Um, as you see fit, sort of expound on what um, what is at stake in Chapter 4 here. Uh, why talk about reprodu okay. reproduction in this way? Well, okay, so in the first part, we brought in time, space, and place, as well as kind of theorizing a bit the links or maybe non-links between Goffman and Foucault. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we've got we've got sort of a foundation. Now we've got, we're going to put the middle in there. And what is the middle? The middle is reproduction. I mean, writ large. So reproducing your body every day, reproducing classes. I mean, the upper class has to reproduce itself or else it will fall apart. The middle class has to reproduce itself or else it will fall apart. Um, so what I'm trying to do there is just look at what is what are the basics involved in um, in, rep in reproduction, in the reproduction of the self day after day after day. So, I, I mean, and I talk a lot about a whole slew of different things from urban villages in China to um, uh, um, base, uh, underground building in London mansions to um, the... Uh, surplus army of workers um, so I cover it's actually I think the longest chapter and I talk a lot also about the collapse of the middle class in the United States and how that came about and um, and also the building of the middle class in the 1940s and 50s and 60s and how the working class actually became the middle class in the United States during that period for the first time in human history is something that would have really shocked, I think, Karl Marx um, because I don't think he ever envisioned the working class becoming middle class, even though his conception of the middle class is pretty um, hazy. I mean, you can't really tell what the middle class consists of, at least in terms of what I read of Marx, except that it consists of maybe people that are going up to the upper class or down to the lower class. But other than that, it's a little hard to envision what's going on in the middle class in his in his writing. Um, so what I want to do is I'm starting to I'm starting to hint uh, what's going to come later. I'm starting to hint at what it's going to come later, which is the body. We're going to talk about the body in the next chapter. So here it's reproduction, and it has a lot to do with the corpus, with the body, of course. And um, so I'm trying to construct or trying to formulate what's needed, what's required for the everyday to exist. You've got to have time, place, and space. And I theorize them as all conjoined. Then you've got to have reproduction, the basics of life. And uh, after that will come the body. Yeah, well, this is an opportune uh, way to transition into the next chapter. I th I, in fact, I think of chapters four and five as, as fairly uh, uh, closely linked. Uh, no, no reproduction, no body. We have reproduction. We can now take up those concerns. Um, chapter five is bringing in the body, 
uh, you engage um, uh, a, a wide range of thinkers, um, including uh, phenomenologists such as Merleau-Ponty, um, a fairly interesting body of psychological research, um, uh, new sort of cognitive science and uh, neurological understandings of the senses. Um, I wonder if we could uh, sort of walk through this very rich fifth chapter. Um, what do you want to do with the body within your account of the everyday? How is the everyday embodied? Okay, well, first, I, I just want people to be aware that there has to be a body in such a theory. Oh, yes. That without the body, there is no everyday. So, uh, I mean, that sounds very obvious and kind of silly, but a lot of times, in especially in the history of Western thought, the body has been completely overlooked. So I start with Merleau-Ponty because he, as far as I can tell, is really the first philosopher to bring the body into the discussion. You know, and uh, I mean, he's faulted because by kind of a, a default, his body, his way of thinking of the body is kind of a white male body, um, a kind of very masculine uh, heterosexual body. But nevertheless, he brought in the body. Well, then we have to start thinking about situating the body. I mean, and this is where I talk about the indexical, indexical coordination of the body. Mm -hmm. And here you have to think about the here and the there, the near and the far, and how these things are all relative to your position in space. So I, I talk about that quite a bit and, and that, you know, your here is my there, but your here can become my here if I move to you. And, and my here can become your here if you move to me. To where I was. So all those kind of questions, which I find quite interesting. And then the last thing I believe that I have in this chapter is kind of a something that I've been thinking about quite a bit, which is the uh, cross pollinization or even more than that, the kind of embedded quality of the senses. So the best example I can think of this uh, there's two I'll mention. One is that there are now um, mountain bikers who are blind. Uh, I mean, that sounds impossible. Mountain bikers who are blind. But how they navigate their bikes is through echolocation. So they're using the same kind of um, technique as a bat. So they have devices on their box, on their bike that bounce off of rocks and different trees and different things in the pathway and then bounce back at them and tell them where everything is. So that's one thing that you can see that the senses are working together. They're not separate, distinct entities as we were taught in grade school, the five senses. And there may be as many as 15 or 22 senses besides those five. The other example, which is quite good, is that when you're playing ping pong, you locate the ball not only through the visual, but also through the auditory. So you hear where the ball is um, in space. So the idea of the senses being discrete is false. They are working together all the time, and they are cross-referencing um, each other. I mean, even to think of them as discrete from each other is false, I believe. And that's what seems like a lot of people that are giving a lot of deep thought to the senses are beginning to realize these days, that these things are much more embedded within each other than we thought before. So another example of this is um, when they would analyze sight – they would use a still subject, you know, to analyze sight. But subjects are not still. Subjects move. And, you know, sight is related to uh, the world around you. So it's kind of a false um, set of circumstances to analyze sight in a still subject. So those are some of the things that I talk about in this chapter. Yeah, no, that's great. We're talking about the body in order to talk about how it senses the world. We're, we're, we're fundamentally interested in what you call an ecology of perception and um, understanding all the, all the blinders, all the constraints that come along with sort of nominating one's own body, one's own particular body as the index of of, of, of bodies writ large, um, you're still willing to sort of pu push it into that territory, understanding the body as embedded in a much richer and more complex and ever-changing 
world. Um, so we've. And also, yeah. I would like to add. I just want to add that geography is of paramount importance here because uh, your senses are tuned into that outside world, and that world, that outside world, is is your own particular geography at that particular moment. Yeah. Yeah. So we've been working very, very systematically, as the book itself does, through uh, the first five chapters. We've uh, uh, sort of fleshed out the concept of the everyday as such. We've um, tried to cut a path uh, between between excessively macro and micro approaches to it. We've added in, or brought in, as you say, the concept of time, space, place. We've uh, added some complexity to our historical sense of time. We've taken up questions of social and bodily reproduction and economic reproduction as well. Um, we've thought about the body as a sensate entity in the world. And then, um, sort of the culminating chapter of the, the book, chapter six here, you say it's time to bring in geography. Um, in a sense, we've been doing that all throughout the book, of course, and you don't mean um, just a, a narrow um, sort of disciplinary sense of geography. You're not saying, let's now consult some geographers and see what they say. Um, but there is a very important gesture um, that takes place, I think, in this last chapter, um, which is, um, as, as I read it, an attempt to sort of enrich our um, understanding of uh, the materiality of the world around us. Um, I'd like to hear you talk about um, how you do that, why you do it in that way, and um, what this new attention to uh, sort of the liveliness or vibrancy or animacy of matter as such uh, adds to the theory here. Well, here what I'm really trying to bring in is uh, the mind. And um, so we got the body, now we're going to add the mind. And the mind, um, as I came to conceive of it, is intimately uh, attuned or not attuned, that's not a strong enough word, aligned or is almost at one with the geography around the mind. So the, the, the mind and one's present geography, and by one's present geography, I mean I'm speaking in a very broad way here. I, I mean, for instance, right now I'm sitting in a kitchen in um, a house in Quilcene, and so I'm looking at a stove, I'm looking at a sink, I'm looking at a refrigerator. That's my particular geography at the moment. But it's also what's going on. It, it's, it reflects my mind, and my mind reflects it. And that there's no um, constitutive um, portioning off of those two things from one another. I mean, there's no mind without geography and there's no geography without mind. So I really want to, um, in a way, I mean, I'm doing something a little risky here in that I am a geographer and I'm making a claim for geography, which might seem very grandiose to some, but I'm trying to be as accurate as possible in um, how I see the world. Um, so what I'm trying to do here is um, theorize the mind as a thing that is intimately tied together uh, with its particular geography. So, so that's what I'm trying to do in this chapter. Yeah, um, yeah. The, the the word thing uh, sort of sets off uh, not, not 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 to say uh, alarms. No, I, the, the 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 term calls out in this context because you you lead the chapter. Um, you, you you lead into the chapter by invoking uh, what by now I think has has become sort of a, a canonical exposition by uh, the political theorist Jane Bennett in her work Vibrant Matter. Um, uh, which is a self-confessed theory of things. I think she calls it a political ecology of things. You start with the things. The second and the third sections of the chapter get us to the mind, but in this, I think, uh, uh, distinctly material way. Yeah, it's a very material conception. I mean, Jane Bennett does a great job of sort of laying out uh, – you know, I mean, she says, listen, 90% of your body is bacteria. And um, she talks about the thingly quality of the world, you know, and and she has these great examples of like kind of Maryland 
ditches where there might be like um, uh, a discarded uh, shirt or something in the in the ditch, and that these things, the ditch, that discarded shirt, uh, evoke in your it work on your mind in such a way as to evoke thoughts reflecting the things that are there. So it's a very um, thing like um, approach to the mind, a very material way of looking at the at the mind. It, it, in, the, in the mind is not just an abstract repository of ideas, but it, it's also a thingly uh, connection with the world. Yeah, and I think I think crucially in in her work and in the work of um, a few other few other scholars you you bring into the fold, the philosopher Alvin Noe, um, uh, uh, John Protevi, um, Gregory Bateson, uh, from from a number of years back, um, the um, the the upshot or one of the upshots here is to um, sort of cut a path beyond excessively anthropocentric understandings of of the world and understandings of geography. Um, and yeah, in a sense, uh, calling for or uh, instilling a certain uh, humility re- regarding uh, the the human subject at at the center or maybe not at the center um, of what it is to write geographically. Um, so on that note, um, you know, we've we've moved through the um, I think uh, very clear organization of of the argument across six chapters. Um, I wonder if we can sort of wrap up by uh, asking in a general sense, what does this book enable us to do? Um, is it that having put together um, this full-fledged theory of uh, the everyday and its geographies, is it that we are now able to describe the world in a better way? Is it that it points us towards new political or social formations? Is it this question of anthropocentrism and alternatives to that? Um, is it that there are particular empirical problems uh, that we can illuminate in distinctive ways? I just wonder if you could reflect on sort of the larger, um, the larger implications of the analysis. Okay, well, I would say two main things. One, the first one is uh, this theory or these different um, tools uh, that we've talked about quite a bit can be used to um, understand the everyday. In other words, if you look at any situation or any milieu and you go through kind of a a checklist of time, space, place, reproduction, body, and mind – you'll get a pretty good understanding of what's going on in that uh, situation or in that milieu. But the other thing I would say is that in the end, I think there's quite a bit of political power to such a theory and to some of the questions that it, it, it that emerge from it. I mean, the main thing is it, it was exactly what you were just talking about, that if we stop um, – anthropomizing everything, we will begin to see things in a truer light and we will give things and when I say things, I include other people, um, animals, the forest, the ocean, we'll give them much more uh, of their due. And that is uh, something which could be a tremendous political uh, importance as well. So those two things are are the, and also, I have to say, there's something about this that was a bit. Um, I wanted people to realize that geography matters. Geography matters. Um, so that's another thing that I wanted uh, to come out of this book as well. Yeah, you, uh, you don't have to convince me of that, or I would assume most of our listeners. But I, I'm of course sympathetic to that that broader mission. Um, geography does indeed matter. Um, I get the sense in the last pages of the of the book that there are aspects of this current book, there are aspects of the argument that um, that you're still thinking of. That there may be um, a successor book in the mix. Um, I wonder if that's the, the the case. You could tell us what you are working on right now. 
Well, I've, actually, there's, I haven't worked on anything that um, immediately comes after that book. I think also in those, in those pages, I invite people to also themselves do work on this. So um, what I'm working on now is um, two books. I have a book coming out next year from Rutledge on um, called The Metaphysical City, um, Six Aspects of the Metaphysics of the City. So I um, go through the city as as a as possibly a human thing, as a creature, as a jail cell. The city is a jail cell. The city is a thing. The city is a home, and the city is spectacle. And all of those things are tied to different cities. So the spectacle is Los Angeles. The home is Tokyo. The thing is Mumbai. The jail cell is Cairo. Uh, the human is Paris and the creature is New York City. So that book is, should come out next year. But I'm also working on another book of about the country versus the city. So the urban versus the rural and how this is a, a really um, it's come to the fore in the last year or so because of Trump's victory and the rural support that he got and that the urban uh, side of the ledger was resoundingly for um, Clinton. So it sort of came before then. And I'm looking at that and seeing that this is there's a long history to this. And Marx writes about it. Hegel writes about it. Um, and so I'm, I'm, I'm looking at that and I'm looking at various countries around the globe, actually 24 countries um, in terms of their particular um, battle of the of the city versus the countryside. And I'm also looking at populism in that. So it's much more political work and, uh, than I've done in the past. Sounds fascinating. I mean, it cuts to the, the heart of some, some core concerns in urban geography and urban studies more broadly. Um, so two book projects upcoming uh, from our guest today, Rob Sullivan, who's been very generous with his time. Um, been, this has been fascinating. We've been discussing the geography of the everyday toward an understanding of the given. This book came out in 2017 from the University of Georgia Press. Um, this is New Books in Geography, channel on the New Books Network. Uh, my name is Peter Ekman. I have been talking with Rob Sullivan here. And um, thanks so much for taking the time, Rob. It's been a real pleasure. Oh, thank you, Peter. I really enjoyed it.